my long walk up here. Good morning, Shane. Thank you. And Shane, do I understand last week you spoke on Jesus and exorcism? Yes. All right. I've got big shoes to fill this morning. We'll see if I can do it. We'll try and keep it as exciting. Uh, Good morning, everyone. Now or afternoon? We're somewhere in there. Good morning or afternoon, whichever one you want to call it. Uh, Yes, it's an honor to be with you uh, this morning. I am, I presently live in Michigan. My family and I recently moved there, met some Michigan folks who came up and said, we don't often see Michigan people in Abilene. So that's uh, kind of fun for me to have here. I've, I've spent time in West Texas. I haven't spent too much time in Abilene. So I spent some time researching, you know, what are people in Texas like? What do they do? And I saw that everything is bigger in Texas. So take whatever you do elsewhere and make it bigger. So since this is the second service, we decided to go with a two-hour sermon here. Does that that work for everyone? Um, A few of you think I'm kidding. No, I am kidding. That's sarcasm. Sorry. Uh, Okay, seriously, though, we'll turn to what we're actually talking about. I'm Jake from Fuller Seminary, the Fuller Youth Institute. The topic that we're going to focus on this morning uh, is this question, which uh, comes up on the screens here. What does the next generation need most? Okay, what does the next generation need most? And I want to tell you a bit of why I'm taking you into that topic. Shane already mentioned uh, that I'm the co-author of a book called Growing Young. I have a background having worked in the church as a youth pastor, as a missionary with an organization called Youth with a Mission, or YWAM. So there's a lot of youth and young people in those titles. With Fuller Seminary, I get to interact with and study a lot of young people and then travel the country and the world training thousands of uh, pastors and church leaders every year on what it looks like to have an effective ministry uh, with young people. Now, I deeply believe in and love the church. On the other hand, I think there are some things about the church that very much need to change and be updated take you into that in a minute. Now, I don't just care about this because I love the church or I study the church, though both of those things are true. I care about this topic for reasons that I would imagine are similar to you, and that's that I have some young people in my life who I really care about. So if we can put up the photo of my family here, this is from one of our recent travels to speak on growing young. Now, the fuzzy one on the bottom, that's a koala. That is not our child, right? Um, We're not like in northern Michigan where I won't go down that road. Uh, My wife, Lauren, on the left, and then our sons, uh, Will, is above Lauren. He's five, and Theo is two on the right. I care about the church and the future of the church because I want to see a church around that matters, that's transformative by the time my sons are in their teenage and young adult years and beyond that. So in just a moment, we're going to dive into 2 Corinthians 5, but before we do that, I want to give you some background on why we're talking about this topic. Now, when we think about the church and we think about the world that the church is in, I think most of us would nod our heads and agree that the world for today's young people is very different than the world of 20, 30, 60 years ago. We have multiple generations represented in this room. Some of you are Gen Z, whether you know it or not. Others of you are millennials. Others of you are Gen X. There's some baby boomers in the room. And then there's this group. I don't know how they got this title, if it was self-appointed. They're known as the greatest generation. Um, I'm going to assume that that's self-appointed, but we've got every generation in the room. 
And no matter what your generation, there are some things that make you unique. So to draw that out, we're going to do a, a quiz. I, I teach in theological education and all that, so I think it's a fun quiz. Uh, so let's go ahead and put this first image up, and I just need you to tell me what it is that you see pictured here. Okay, I hear a hashtag, I hear a pound sign, I heard someone say tic-tac-toe. <laughs> There were a couple other things, right? But the generation that you are born into very clearly shapes. Some of you are wondering, what's a pound sign? What's a hashtag, right? Just ask someone from a, a generation very different than you. But I guess tic-tac-toe is the great unifier across the age groups. Um, in a second, we're going to play an audio clip, but here's the ground rules. You can only guess what this is if you're age 20 or younger. Okay, 20 or younger. So let's go ahead and roll the audio clip. Give it a sec. Okay, anyone who's age 20 or younger want to venture a guess, what is that noise? What do you think? R2-D2. I heard R2-D2. Close, close, close. Okay, that is called a dial-up internet modem. This is how we used to have to connect to the internet before we had smartphones. Some of you, I've just taken you back to a phase you don't want to remember, right? Okay. Uh, for this next one, you need to be 70 or older to tell me the image on the screen. 70 or older. <laughs> Anybody? Okay, how about 60 or older? Fif 50 or older? Snapchat. Okay, someone said Snapchat over there, right? This is a messaging service that many young people and others use to connect. And um, for the last one, let's say you need to be age 30 or younger. So 30 or younger for this one here. What is pictured here? What is it? No, it's not a VCR. Eight-track player. Okay, someone has uh, paid attention to their parents' or grandparents' music. So there's some differences in generations, right, and things that we experience based on our age that make us different, and some of these are fun. Some of them have shaped us in very different ways. So I want to put an image up on the screen that if you're a baby boomer, if you are in the greatest generation, uh, this, this gives a picture of what it looked like for you to grow up and become an adult. Now, I'm painting with broad strokes. It wasn't this simple for everyone, but basically we start out in high school. And then after high school, we'd either go to college or we'd go into the military or at some point we would get a job. After getting a job, we'd get married. After getting married, we'd have kids. And it's a bit of a linear path because there was, there was a clearer path for what it looked like to grow up. And the key phrase that I used was after that. You would do this thing and then you would do this thing. And there was somewhat of an expectation with which society flowed. Now, if you're Gen Z, millennial, let's just say if you're age 35 or younger, this does not describe your world. I want to show you a diagram that describes your world. <laughs> okay, for those of us growing up today, maybe a way to say it is that there is no path to follow. There are multiple paths. And for those of you who might have kids or grandkids this age, or you are on the younger side, you can acknowledge that sometimes it's exhausting trying to figure out which of the paths and the twists and the turns do I take. So into this world, in this reality, I want to bring in the question, let's go back to what does the next generation need most? 
Now, in the midst of the complexity, I actually think the answer to that question is very simple. Here's what I think the next generation needs most. The next generation needs to experience the good news of Jesus Christ or gospel of Jesus Christ demonstrated by supportive and caring Christian adults. I don't think that's just true for younger generations. I think that is true for every generation in this room. We need to experience the transformative power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We'll talk about what that is in a minute. Demonstrated by people around us in community. The first part, of, or the second part of that is fairly clear. Okay, that needs to be in community or for young people specifically. We need caring Christian adults coming around us. It's the first part of it that gets a little muddier. What exactly do we mean by the gospel or good news of Jesus Christ? I'll give you a few options. Some of us may have heard the gospel as if you trust and follow Jesus, your life will be easy, you will be healthy, wealthy, happy. That could be what you've heard. For others of us, the gospel might be that Jesus died for us, that someday we're going to go to heaven. For others, it's that we've been shown grace, so now we can show others grace. For some of us, it's that God doesn't just love us, but God actually likes us. For others of us, the good news of the gospel is that we've now got a direct prayer line to God, so if we pray hard enough, our football team might win the big game, right? We've all got different approaches to the gospel. The point that I want to make here, and this is where we're going to turn to 2 Corinthians. Uh, so we'll end up putting it on the screen, but if you want to open your Bible or your smartphone to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, you can do so. Here's the point that I want to make. When we ask the question of what is the gospel, there's a lot of places in Scripture you could look. In our current era, with this current generation, I think one of the best examples of the gospel that we see is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So I want to turn there now, and we're going to unpack this kind of verse by verse and see what does Paul have to say about the gospel and good news of Jesus Christ. So let's start out with verse 11, 2 Corinthians 5 chapter 11. Paul writes this, since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. And what Paul's saying here is this, something, this is something that has to start with us. If we haven't experienced that transformative power of Jesus, if this isn't something that we've had personally, it becomes difficult to invite others into. And Paul's saying because we've done this, that motivates us to want to persuade others. So that's where it begins. Let's jump down to verse 13. Paul says, if we're out of our minds, as some say, it is for God, but if we're in our right mind, it is for you. Now, there's lots of, th of things that we could say about Paul and him being out of his mind, but what he's referencing is, hey, there's some people who think that I'm crazy. Paul made decisions. He made sacrifices. He invested in things that made a lot of people around him say, Paul, why are you living the way that you're living? What I wonder for us in this era is if we as Christians have put so much effort, time, and attention on trying to be like the world around us, that we've actually lost some of those very important things that make us different as Christians. For some of us, when it comes to the gospel that we believe, 
I wonder if we need to let it make us a little more weird. Now, we're going to talk about what some of those ways are, but that people might look at us and say, I think you're a little crazy because of the way that you live. Let's jump down to verse 14. And let me say, for those of you who consider yourselves theological heavyweights on the side afterwards, we can have a… this is a rich theological passage. There's a whole lot we can unpack. We're doing kind of a flyby looking at the gospel for the sake of young people. Want to recognize that? I know we have some professors and such in the room. Verse 14, here we go. Paul writes, for Christ's love compels us. I'm going to say that one again. For Christ's love compels us. I want to spend a second on that because I think for a lot of us, we might know the gospel, but the gospel that we hold is the sort of gospel where we're beating someone over their head with our Bible. It doesn't feel like a gospel that's motivated by love, whether it's motivated by fear or anger or all the other sorts of things that could be motivated by. For Paul, the gospel that he believes, the message that he's passing on is motivated by the love of Christ. Let's continue in verse 14. Because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died, and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and raised and was raised again. Now, we're starting to get into some Paul sort of language where it really gets to be a mouthful and kind of a brain bender, right? So, let's just unpack a simple piece of that. What Paul is saying is because Jesus had died, has died for us, the invitation is that we are no longer meant to live selfish, self-centered. Everything is about us. We are meant to live for Christ and meant to live for those who are around us. That is a natural outworking of the gospel. All right, let's turn to verse 16. Paul says, so from, no on, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, and the new is here. And what Paul's saying is, as you look at people around you, whether there's someone from a different generation who looks, acts, talks, or thinks in some way different than you, or it's that person who cuts you off in traffic, or it's that person who, for whatever reason, they're kind of your other, they are different than you. Paul says, we are not just in a world of flesh and blood. We're not just in a world of those things that we can see. There are spiritual realities going on here. And particularly for those of us who are in Christ, for those of us who declare that we follow Jesus, he says we are no longer what we were before. We have become a new creation in Christ Jesus. What we can read into there is as Christians, we are not meant to zero in on and focus on those things that make us different. We're invited to focus on our common and shared identity in Jesus Christ. It's those things that hold us together that are most important, not those things that make us different. Okay, it really starts to heat up as we get into verses 18 and 19. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. A few important points that we want to pull out here. 
Paul starts by saying, we have been reconciled to Christ. Now, when you take the word reconcile and you ask, well, what, what does that actually mean? That's kind of a big word, reconcile, the three syllables. Well, when something is reconciled, that means that what's broken is made right. That means two things that maybe weren't fitting together now fit together. Another way to say that is things that weren't existing in harmony now exist in harmony. And what Paul's saying is through the actions of Jesus, we are now reconciled to Christ. This is a gift that we can accept that we are one with God. But Paul doesn't stop there. He doesn't say, so hey, you've been given, you've been reconciled to God, feel good about yourself, you'll go to heaven someday, stop there. What Paul says is we've been given a ministry and a message of reconciliation. What Paul says is the moment that you took on the gospel, the moment that you believed the gospel, it's not just about something that was done for you, it's something that you have now been invited into. When I think about reconciliation, these are big, abstract, theological concepts. I also think they can become very, very simple. Let me boil down reconciliation for you with a quick video. We're going to learn through the eyes of two-year-olds, okay? So this video, in the last three days, has been making the rounds on the internet. It has gone viral. It's been on a bunch of late night shows and newscasters have been showing it. And I, let's play it one more time and turn up the volume. I want you to hear the boy yelling, my friend, my friend, as he runs toward the other boy. Go ahead and play it just one more time. I mean, doesn't it just melt your heart, these little two-year-olds coming together? And I think part of the reason these last three days that it's making the rounds is because what people have been saying is, isn't this what we need as a country? That we have people who are different, who are isolating themselves from another, and maybe we need to tap into the perspective of a couple two-year-olds in New York City who haven't seen each other in two days, who are just so thrilled to come together that they throw their arms around each other in that open embrace. Our world is desperate for a ministry of reconciliation. And if we look around us and we see a world that is not reconciled and that's broken and that's separated, Jesus is saying to us, the message of reconciliation has been given to those of you in this room. I hear that you all at Highland Church care about something called restoration. Oh, wait, look, it's over there on the wall, right? The restoration of the world, of Abilene and of Highland Church, restoration, reconciliation, these are two sides of the same coin. We're talking about something very similar. Let's go to verse 20. Paul writes this, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled 
to God. And what Paul is saying here, when you are an ambassador, you're actually speaking for and on behalf of someone else. You are representing that person to someone else. And Paul goes as far to say, when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to this message of reconciliation, Jesus isn't doing all of it from heaven or invisibly somewhere. Jesus and the Spirit are certainly active. But God's plan for this world is working through you and working through me. You are God's ambassador to deliver this message of reconciliation. Now, I wish I could stop there. We could just end the sermon and say, isn't this great? What young people need is this message of reconciliation. It's done. It's happening. But the reality is that all is not well when it comes to young people, faith, and our church. And I don't just speak about Highland. I don't know as much about Highland. I will let David or Shane or someone else tell you more about that in the future. But when we think about the church in America, all is not well in our ministry with young people. Let me show you a couple statistics. The first one is this. When you look at the data, we find that one out of every two young people who are growing up in good Christian churches like Highland who go to Sunday school, who are taught the gospel, who are at least surrounded by a community of adults, end up drifting from God, drifting from their faith after high school, a significant percentage of whom are never to return. Now, you take each community and each church, and you start to add that up, and there are estimates coming out now that about one million young people every year in the United States are leaving the Christian faith. Okay, one million young people who used to identify as I was part of a church or I was Christian are actually leaving the Christian faith in the United States. Now, I want to be clear from where I started out. I'm not down on or negative about the next generation. I am not down on or negative on the church. I actually have a lot of hope for both, but I think we need to reflect for a minute on what is the challenge, what is the issue that's going on here. Let me take you into my working theory based on a lot of research and a lot of personal experience with this age group and the church. I found that young people, like every generation, are drawn to the most exciting, compelling story that they are given the opportunity to live into. All of us are seeking some sort of adventure or story to be part of and give our lives toward. For some of us, that ends up being sports. For others, it's video games. For some of us, it's movies and television. But for many young people, I think they're looking at the Christian life offered by many of our churches, and they're not finding it to be the most compelling, exciting, world-transforming thing that they could experience. Many of them are finding the gospel of Jesus Christ in the church to be something that's passive, something that's just about a set of rules, that's about how to get into heaven when they die, or worse yet, perhaps something hypocritical. For many young people, the gospel in the church is not something defined by the ministry of reconciliation. It's something that I learned when I was a little kid. I'll try to be a good person, but I'm not sure I really want to go to church when I get older. What's interesting in all this is in our research, young people continue to be drawn to Jesus. They find Jesus compelling. They find Jesus inviting them into a bigger world. The question is, do they actually find that within their church? And part of what I wonder is if there's so much cultural distance between generations today, 
If somehow we're marked by the things that make us different, so we spend time separate, we're not as invested in each other's lives as we could be, that today's younger generations don't get to see older generations actually living out this ministry of reconciliation that we've been called to. Let me go back to the simple point of what I think young people today need. I think we have a slide for it to go on the screen. Young people today, just like every generation, need to experience the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ demonstrated by supportive and caring Christian adults. Well, for those of you who you'd say, well, I'm not a full-time teacher, I'm not a full-time youth minister, I'm not a full-time coach, what does my role in this process look like? I want to give you a taste, and uh, we're, we're moving toward the conclusion here. We were stu- we've been studying a number of churches in our book on Growing Young. So over the last several years, we studied about 250 churches, and in one of these congregations on the East Coast, I was in a room of 20-somethings. And in this room with 20-somethings was asking them, why do you love your church so much? One of them pointed to the sermons and said, I love the preaching at our church. A few heads nodded. One of them pointed to the mission trips at their church. A few heads nodded. Well, at one point, one of the 20-somethings said, you know what I love about our church? It's Bill Wallace. Okay, and at that point, every head in the room started to nod. Young people started to tell about their experience with Bill, and they would talk about how in the hallways at church, Bill would drop by after the service and just ask them how their life was going. Or Bill would show up to a fourth grader's dance recital and be sitting with the family, or Bill would show up to a 10th grader's basketball game and be cheering him or her on. And being youth ministry researchers, we thought, we know who Bill is. Bill's probably your 22-year-old youth pastor. He's not very organized, but he's great at what we call relational ministry, right? He hangs out with teenagers. And they said, no, 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 Bill's not in his 20s. He's not in his 30s. He's not in his 40s. He's not in his 50s. Bill's not in his 60s. They said, Bill Wallace is 76 years old. I want to show you a picture of uh, Bill Wallace, pictured in the upper left here. Now, we spent time talking to Bill and said, Bill, how did you get to earn this voice in young people's lives? Do you have a degree in childhood education, adolescent development? And Bill said, no, it's simple. When I was a kid, my life was awful. And Bill said, when I became an adult through the ministry of this church, when I experienced that reconciliation with God and with others myself, Bill said, I made a decision. There will never be a young person who grows up in our church without experiencing the joy of Jesus Christ demonstrated by the presence of a loving Christian adult. Bill's not paid for this. He's not even a youth ministry volunteer. He is not a professional. Bill surrounds young people with the love of Jesus Christ in all the small sorts of ways that they need day to day. And when I think about what the young people in this community or any part of the community that they need with all the voices and things that they are hearing and being compelled toward, that needs to be balanced and overwhelmed by the support of caring Christian adults who step into their life, who show them what the gospel, the ministry of reconciliation looks like. Again, in this complexity, I actually think it's very, very simple for what younger generations today need. Let me wrap up then practically. What does that mean for you? If you're saying, okay, I'm in, I want to do something, what does that mean? Two things, very quick, very simple. Number one, I would just ask yourself, where might I need to experience the ministry of reconciliation? 
This is something that we have to experience ourselves before we can step into other people's lives. And I think for some of us, we might have some areas that we need to spend some time with God and say, God, please help put me back together. This fits with your vision of restoration. We need to spend time with community, with other adults who say, hey, I need help putting this back together. So think about where in our life do we need to experience restoration. The second thing, again, very simple. This week, be on the lookout for one person from another generation who you can connect with. That might mean learning their name. (laughs) It might be in the hallway right after here. Somebody whose name you don't know, you're going to learn their name, and next week you're going to be able to say hi to them by name. It might mean you're going to drop by a game. It might mean you're just (laughs) going to look at your own kids in a slightly different way, right? Or if you're on the younger side, that you're going to look at someone from a different generation and say, okay, maybe you're not all that different from me. Let's talk about that eight-track player thing. What is that? Is that like an MP3, right? You can have that conversation. I'll conclude here. Highland Church, I truly believe that what a younger generation needs is very similar to what all generations need. I think that as followers of Jesus Christ, we've been invited into the most compelling, life-changing, world-changing journey that anyone could be invited into. If you're on the younger side of life, it's more compelling than Avengers. If you're on the older side of life, it's more compelling than Indiana Jones or Star Wars, right? Like, you pick your generation. The Christian life is meant to be more compelling than those things. I believe the world around us is watching. I believe young people around us are watching together. Let's live into this reality that Jesus invites us into. Would you pray with me, please? God, thank you for inviting us into the ministry of reconciliation. Thank you that you have done something for us, but that you don't stop there. You have actually invited us to live into, participate, and be ambassadors for you. That God, when we see brokenness, and when we see things that are not right in this world, that you invite us to step into that space and help this world become more of what it's been created to be. Don't allow us to believe the lie that we're different from one another. Help us to focus on our identity in you and the things that you have made for us to share. God, we thank you this morning for your word and for your investment in us. It's in your son, Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you, and I'll turn it over to David. You're in good hands. Yeah.